We're going to begin with the Trinity today, and I've been really looking forward to this. I, I always enjoy teaching things, especially that I'm still learning about. Um, you know, I've, I've heard the doctrine of the Trinity from the time I was a kid, but when you kind of see it from a different angle and uh, just kind of have some your eyes awakened to things, it's nice to teach when it's fresh like that. So I'm looking forward to this. Uh, before we get into the notes, though, I do want to point you to a few resources on the subject of the Trinity. If this is uh, all new to you, or if this is, if you just want to dig deeper, um, on the back table there are a couple of copies left of R.C. Sproul's little book, "What Can We Know About God," and uh, he goes over the attributes of God and things like that. But the Trinity, there's a short section in there on the Trinity, uh, but it'll give you a good foundational uh, kind of introduction to it if if this is new. Um, if you want more details, this is not for the faint of heart, but if you really want to go deeper on the Trinity, a book by James White called The Forgotten Trinity, I would recommend that. Um, really what it is is a, a Bible study of the Trinity, and it goes through the various texts in some detail, uh, explaining. Uh, Sproul gives a little bit more of the historical perspective, explaining the language of the Trinity and how that developed over time, whereas James White's book is more so... Um, just going through the biblical text and showing the Trinity from Scripture. Uh, and then lastly, I'll recommend, if you guys are into YouTube stuff, I know some of you uh, learn better through uh, hearing things and reading things. I took a course, it's on YouTube free, The Universal Reign of the Triune God, I think is the title of it. It's only like a six-hour course, and it's, it was very, very good by Bruce Ware. Um, so anyways, if you want to go deeper on those subjects... Those are some, uh, some things I found helpful. Um, before we dive into it again, I want to uh, remind us of something we started to cover several months ago, and that is the incomprehensibility of God, uh, just the fact that we cannot fully grasp God, right? As uh, Augustine said, if, if I could fully understand him, he would not be God. And so as we come to the doctrine of the Trinity, we should not be surprised if there are aspects of it uh, that are difficult for us to sort out. Okay, so don't please don't come these next few weeks expecting... Uh, by the end of this, you're just going to totally understand everything there is to know about the Trinity, uh, because that would be an expectation a little bit too high for me. Um, God is totally unlike anything in creation, and so there is no good analogy for the Trinity. Uh, some people have tried to come up with analogies like, you know, water or whatever. You've heard the, the different analogies. None of them really work. There's problems with all of them. We're going to talk about some of that in a few weeks. Um, but the but because the Trinity is so unique, and because the nature of God is so unique, uh, it is difficult for us to comprehend. It's sort of like a beetle trying to understand a human being. It's just not going to happen because we're a higher form of existence um, than a bug. And so, you know, the gulf between us and God is infinitely more than a beetle and a human. Uh, so just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this. Somebody said, uh, if, you, if you try to deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. If you try to understand the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. Um, and I, <laughs> I think that's just a good thing to keep in mind as we uh, start our study. So we're going to look at Scripture over the next few weeks, try to grasp as much as is revealed in the Bible. Uh, but at a certain point, we're going to reach the limit of how far we can go, and uh, we'll have to be content with that. Now, one thing I want to get on the table before we dive into the Trinity is the name of God. And this is going to become important as we uh, go along in our study. God's name Revealed in the Old Testament is Yahweh. Uh, often people say it's Jehovah, which is actually, it's a misunderstanding. You could say it's a mispronunciation. Uh, we'll talk about some of that later. But the Hebrew word for God is Elohim, 
and God's name is Yahweh. Okay, this is true from the beginning of Genesis all the way through the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so Elohim is just a generic word for God. Um, it corresponds pretty neatly to our English word God. Uh, Genesis 2.4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. Now, whenever you see the word Lord in all caps, okay, it, and this is, try to hang with me here. It's not the word Lord in Hebrew, okay, it's the word Yahweh. So when you see it in all caps, you'll, you'll notice pretty much any English Bible that you look at, uh, sometimes Lord will be you know, capital L and then lowercase uh, O-R-D. Sometimes it'll be L-O-R-D all in caps. Have, have you ever noticed that before? If you read the Old Testament, okay? The all caps version is, it's, it's not the Hebrew word for Lord. It's God's actual personal name, Yahweh. Okay, so we need to keep that in mind as we go uh, throughout here. Now you might ask, well, why does it say Lord? If, if the Hebrew says Yahweh, why is it uh, translating it as Lord? Uh, there is a reason for that. There is a Hebrew word for Lord. Uh, Bible trivia, anybody know the Hebrew word for Lord? It's in some songs. I don't know. If Adonai, anybody heard that? Okay. Uh, that's the Hebrew word that means Lord or Master. But the Jews thought it was disrespectful to speak out loud the name Yahweh, God's, God's name. And so uh, they didn't want to utter the name verbally. And so whenever they came across the text that said Yahweh, they would read it as Lord, uh, just as a sign of respect. And so when they saw Adonai, which means Lord, they would say Lord. And when they saw Yahweh, which is God's name, they would also say Lord. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Um, so that tradition of pronouncing Yahweh as Lord, English Bibles have sort of followed suit with that. So Genesis 18.26 uh, notice in verse 26, you see the word Lord in all caps. Verse 27, the word Lord, and it's not in all caps. Those are two different Hebrew words. Okay, the first one is God's name. The second one is the word that means Lord. So uh, if you were to read this literally, it would be, And Yahweh said, If I find it at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Okay, so you see the difference there between Lord and Lord, meaning Yahweh. Um, so uh, let me just confuse you just a little bit more, and then we'll move on. Uh, like I said, the Jews wanted to make sure that they didn't ever uh, accidentally slip up and speak the name Yahweh, because they thought that that was just uh, too holy of a name to utter. Uh, so they placed vowel points under the Hebrew letters for Yahweh. Um, Hebrew is a very weird language. There's no vowels. Okay, the vowels are implied, whatever that means. Um, so there's only consonants. And so the name of God, Yahweh, if you were to put it in English, would be, you know, Y-H-W-H. There's no, no vowels in there. Uh, but the Hebrew, the Jews didn't want to accidentally say Yahweh when they were reading, and so they added the vowel points of Adonai underneath it, basically as a uh, trigger to their memory to say, oh, wait, I don't want to say that name, and so they would say Lord instead. And that's where the Jehovah confusion comes from. Jehovah is a misunderstanding of that tradition where they actually pronounce the consonants of Yahweh with the vowels of Adonai. And it comes out Yehovah or in English Jehovah. Um, so that's where that comes from. It's, it's a misunderstanding of the Hebrew tradition. Um, but the, the reason I point this out, it will become relevant later. I know this seems like kind of random stuff. And I'm sorry, I try not to give you too much uh, Hebrew stuff, but 
especially this early in the morning. That's just not fair. Uh, but just keep in mind, uh, all caps, the word there is Yahweh. It's not Lord. Lowercase, it's the word for Lord. Um, so I'm going to try to clarify that as we go. Whenever we come across the all caps, I will just pronounce it as Yahweh. Uh, but I wanted to explain that so you know what I'm doing there, because it is God's personal name there. It's not uh, the word Lord. All right, um, let's start here with some definitions. Wayne Grudem, in his Systematic Theology, he defines the Trinity this way. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Okay, so that's a very succinct definition of the Trinity. One God eternally existing as three persons who are each fully God. Okay, uh, James White, his definition in the Forgotten Trinity says, Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, if you grew up with some Catholic tradition, I know a few of you kind of grew up with Catholic backgrounds, uh, they're very good on the Trinity. They explain the Trinity exactly the way the Bible teaches it. Um, so if you have that catechism background in your mind, that's a part of the Catholic teaching that is, is very accurate. Um, so you've got one being. You notice some commonality between those two definitions. One being of God that eternally exists as three persons. Okay, they're all co-equal. They're all God. Yet there's one being. Okay, and that'll be flushed out more as we go. One more definition. This comes from Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. He says, there is in the divine being but one indivisible essence, or usia, essentia. In this one divine being, there are three persons, or individual subsistences, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The whole undivided essence of God belongs equally to each of the three persons. The substance and operation of the three persons in the divine being is marked by a certain definite order. There are certain personal attributes by which the three persons are distinguished, the church confesses the Trinity to be a mystery beyond the comprehension of man. Uh, okay, so there are some common language in those definitions. If you have questions on that particular part, we're going to probably answer those later as we go. Uh, but just to get the definitions out there of the Trinity, God is one in being or essence, and he eternally exists or subsists, you could say, as three equal persons who are fully God. Okay, it's not a contradiction because we're not saying God is uh, one and three in the same sense. We're saying God is one in one sense and three in another sense. So one being, three persons. Or you could say one essence, uh, three subsistences. I don't know if that helps clarify it all to you. Uh, one God, three persons. More on that to come. But for now, I just wanted to get that definition out there. Now, we're going to start in the Old Testament. Uh, seeing the Trinity in the Old Testament. Next week, we'll, we'll start into the New Testament, uh, where it's much more clearly seen. And we're going to start by looking at six truths taught concerning the Trinity. And again, this will be over the next few weeks. First, the Bible teaches that there is one God. Uh, then the Bible teaches there is a plurality within the one being who is God. Okay, then the Bible teaches that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And finally... Scripture teaches that the Father, Son, and Spirit, while distinct from one another, are all God. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit. They're not the same person, but they are all fully God, and there is only one God. And that will be my attempt to explain over the next several weeks. First of all, the foundational teaching of the Old Testament is that there is one God. And again, we're going to start with the Old Testament and see how this is flushed out 
uh, as you read through the Bible. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Again, you see the all caps letters there. It's the name Yahweh. It's not the Hebrew word for Lord there. Uh, so Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Very clearly in the Old Testament, the concept of monotheism is, is one of the main tenets of Judaism uh, because the Bible just over and over again, we could look at dozens of verses in the Old Testament where God says, I am God and there's nobody else. I am the only true God and the only God that exists. Isaiah 45, for example, verse 5, I am Yahweh and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. Uh, verse 21, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And so the Old Testament very clearly establishes that there is one true God. Then in the New Testament, God reveals the more complex plurality within God. And I think this was done on purpose to help us not jump into tritheism, the idea that there's three gods. Um, so God first established monotheism as the foundation uh, for Judaism, that there is one God, there is only one God. And then later he explains the plurality within the one being of God. So point one, there is one God. Point two, there is plurality within the one being who is God. And there are hints of this in the Old Testament. Uh, the first would be the Hebrew word for God itself. I mentioned that a few minutes ago, Elohim. Um, it is a plural noun, the im on the end of Elohim. And again, I'm sorry for giving you so much Hebrew. I normally don't do this. Um, the im is sort of like in English when you put an S on the end of a word and it makes it plural. Okay, so think one cherub, two cherubim. Uh, one seraph, two seraphim. Okay, Elohim has that same ending. And so the, the very word for God in Hebrew implies plurality. Um, let's see here. There are also another hint toward the plurality of God is the plural pronouns used in reference to God. So Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, who's the us? Who's the our? Uh, Jews would claim that this is God speaking to the angels. Because, you know, Jews don't want to affirm that there's three different persons within God. They say there's only one person. And so... Uh, if there's only one person that is God, then, you know, why does he say let us, and this isn't just English, these are Hebrew, the, the, the pronouns are plural. Uh, let us make man in our image. And so they would say, well, God is talking to the angels. And so God is saying, in our image of God and the angels, that's what we're going to make man in. What would be your answer to that? If somebody brought that objection to you, how would you respond? Is there any, any red flags that's popping up saying, well, that can't be? putting on the spot. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, I think I think you're getting towards. Go ahead, Catherine. Well, that's a good thought. 
Right. Angels don't create, only God does. So what is, what is that even talking about? Um, but if you take this, and, and my answer would be the next verse. Um, so God says, let us make man in our image. So whatever image the hour is, that's what human beings are going to be made in. And the next verse says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, uh, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God says, let us make man in our image. And then the next verse says, that image is the image of God. And so clearly, there, this plurality, I think it's just really nonsensical to say it's referring to God and the angels for many reasons, some of which you just mentioned. But uh, the very next verse clarifies that, no, this is the image of God. And yet, plural pronouns are used in reference to God. And so that's another kind of hint at the Trinity in the Old Testament. Uh, all right, next one would be Genesis 20, verse 13. There are some places in the Old Testament where plural verbs are used in reference to God, and these are not reflected in English because we um, English is not as precise a language. So if I say, you know, I'm going to run to the store, or I say we're going to run to the store, run is spelled the same. In Hebrew, it would be spelled differently. In Greek, is the same way. Um, they're more precise languages, and so you can tell whether something is the action of one person or the action of multiple people. Uh, Genesis 20, verse 13 says, When God caused me to wander uh, from my father's house. And that verb, caused me to wander, uh, is a plural verb in Hebrew. So again, it's just a hint that you know God did this, and yet it's, it's almost as if multiple people did it um, because of the tense of the verbs there. Uh, I think that's all my Hebrew for today. I'm going to try to just stick to English from here on out. Uh, in the Old Testament, the three persons of the Trinity are typically called uh, Yahweh, or Lord in, in all caps, and that would correspond to the Father, as we know in the New Testament, um, the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, which would correspond to Jesus, and then the Spirit of Yahweh, or the Spirit of the Lord, which would correspond to the Holy Spirit. Um, so I think my opinion on this is anytime you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is referring to Jesus. I don't think it's just an angel. Um, it seems to me pretty clearly that it's talking about Jesus. For example, Exodus chapter 3. The angel of Yahweh appeared to him, to Moses, uh, in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. So the angel, you know, verse 2 says, the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in the, in the, in the burning bush. And then verse 4 says, God talked to him from out of the bush. So who's the angel of Yahweh? God. Uh, Numbers 22, verse 31. Then Yahweh opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of Yahweh standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. Now, if the angel of Yahweh was just an angel, uh, he would not accept the worship of another human being. This is an argument for the New Testament as well. There's times when Jesus accepts worship from people. Uh, therefore, he understands himself to be God. Uh, there's no other way really to read that. The angel of Yahweh said to him, verse 32, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside uh, from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of Yahweh, I have sinned, for I did not know that it was you who stood in the road uh, against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. The angel of Yahweh said to Balaam, 
go with these, uh, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So notice the angel of Yahweh says, speak only the word that I tell you. Then verse 38, Balaam said to, Bar uh, to Balak, behold, I have come to you. Have I not, uh, have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. So angel of Yahweh is God. We see that just putting those two verses together. He says, the angel of Yahweh says, only speak what I tell you. And then a few verses later, he says, I can only speak what God tells me. Therefore, Balaam understood the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, was God himself. Uh, one more example of this, Judges 13, verse 9. This is um, when God appears to the mother of Samson. It says, God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. The angel of Yahweh said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Verse 21, The angel of Yahweh appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of Yahweh. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. Again, very clearly, they understood the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, was God himself. Um, another Old Testament example, this is one of my favorite. If you, if you ever come across a Jew or someone that just kind of claims, uh, you know, God is only one person and it's, you know, crazy to think Jesus is God, that's their main objection to Christianity, is that we teach that Jesus is God. Um, this is a good text to go to. Isaiah verse 40, uh, chapter 48. Verse 12, and just pay attention here to the pronouns that are used. So verse 12, listen to me, O, God, uh, o Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Now who's talking there? God, more specifically. Now, more specifically, who, who's the first and the last? Revelation 1. Jesus, right? Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. Okay, so this is Jesus talking. Let's keep reading verse 13. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among you has declared these things? Yahweh loves him. Uh, he shall perform his purposes on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Notice there, Jesus speaking and he talks about Yahweh in the second person as though he's someone distinct from him. Yahweh loves him. He shall perform. He doesn't say I shall. He says, he shall. So whoever's talking here is the first and the last, the creator of the earth, and yet he says he's distinct from Yahweh or some other being, or some other person, I should say, uh, that he refers to as God there. Uh, let's see, verse 15, we'll keep going. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me, hear this from the beginning. I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord Yahweh has sent me and his spirit. So there you see in that verse, all three persons of the Trinity. The Lord Yahweh has sent me, and the me is defined as the first and the last, the creator of everything, and his spirit. And so it seems pretty clear to me in that verse, you've got three persons within the Godhead. Um, so that this is one of my favorite texts to go to in the Old Testament to prove the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is not as clear in the Old Testament as the New Testament. That's undeniable. Okay, you, you turn the page in the New Testament, the Trinity is just explicit. 
Um, in the Old Testament, though, there are significant clues. Uh, and if you're reading carefully, you'll see these things. Uh, let's see here. B.B. Uh, Warfield, he said that the Old Testament is like a fully furnished room that is dimly lit. Uh, and in, in the New Testament, the lights are flipped all the way on. So, in other words, the Trinity is not some new doctrine in the New Testament. It existed in the Old Testament. Uh, but like, I like that analogy of a dimly lit room where the furniture is all there. You just can't see it as clearly until the lights are flipped on. And in the New Testament, uh, you begin to see much more clearly the things that were there in the Old Testament. Are there any questions at this point? we got a decent stopping point here. Uh, any questions? Anything that you're just like dying to ask or confused about? Okay, go ahead. Definitely. Yes. Um, in fact, I have some... Let's see if I want to go there now or not. Yeah, we can go there now. Um, James White wrote this in The Forgotten Trinity. I don't have this on the screen, but I'll just read it. The Trinity as a doctrinal truth has always been true. But when did it become knowable to men? What revealed it to the human race? The answer to that question is simply the incarnation and the coming of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Trinity is revealed by the Son coming in the flesh and the Spirit descending upon the church. Therefore, the Trinity is revealed not in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, but rather in between the Testaments, in the ministry of Christ and the founding of the church. These events are recorded for us in the New Testament, but they took place before a word of the New Testament was written. Uh, the Old Testament was written before its revelation, before the Trinity's revelation. The New Testament, after it. The revelation itself was made, uh, this is B.B. Warfield, sorry, I switched quotes there. Uh, the revelation itself was made not in word, but in deed. It was made in the incarnation of God the Son and the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. The relation of the two testaments to this revelation is in the one case, the Old Testament, that of preparation for it, and in the other, that of product of it. And so uh, one last thing James White says, the disciples were indeed experiential Trinitarians. They had walked with the Son, had heard the Father speak from glory, and now were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Those early believers hearing the testimony of the first followers of Christ could not help but speak of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, so I think that's an interesting thought, that the Trinity really wasn't first revealed on paper in Scripture. It was revealed in real life, <laughs> when God the Son became a human. And then in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit descends upon people visibly. And so I think before the disciples understood the Trinity, they saw it. They saw, you know, Jesus performing, doing things that only God could do. And then they saw the Holy Spirit descending on people and causing them to do, you know, speak in languages they didn't know and all these crazy things. All of that was a manifestation uh, of the three persons of the Godhead. And, and we'll see this more in the New Testament as we go. Uh, for example, Jesus' baptism, right? Uh, Jesus is baptized. He comes up out of the water. A voice from heaven says, this is my son. And so clearly there's a distinction between the person in heaven and the person on earth being baptized. And then the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the baptism as well. And so they saw the Trinity with their own eyes. They heard the voice of the Father. They saw the Son, and they saw the Holy Spirit descending on him. Um, so yes, the, the Trinity is revealed most clearly in the life of Christ uh, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then the New Testament simply gives us the doctrinal understanding of what took place 
on earth and, and, and of the, uh, gives a more clear understanding of the Trinity. Okay, uh, next week we're going to start, I think that's all I want to say today because we are out of time. Next week we're going to start in the New Testament. We're going to look at uh, statements of Jesus about the Trinity, uh, statements of the apostles about the Trinity, and those will be, I think, much clearer. Uh, they're not just hints, they're explicit statements that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and that they are one. Um, and so we'll talk about that more next Sunday.